Welcome back to another fantastic episode of the Scared Tape Horror Podcast. I am your host, Doug Plumatel, writer and director of the upcoming horror feature, Halloween Candy. I am joined once again by the fabulous Dalen Lane. Welcome, Dalen. Hello. As always, so stoked to be back. Are you still feeling the high from our Edward Scissorhands conversation from a couple of weeks back? Yes, I actually had several people who listened to it and gave such positive feedback and felt for me so much when you punked me. So, yes, uh, definitely. I love doing that episode and I'm still on a high from it. Absolutely. That might have been the most feedback I think I've ever gotten from an episode. Great. I, I want all of it. We need all of it. So, you know, yeah. this is how you this is how horror fans thrive, you know, in talking about these beloved films. Go figure. The most feedback we get is the one that's not a real horror movie. But it's a testament to the film because I'm sure so many horror fans love it, but then other fans love it too. So I just think it really speaks volumes to the film itself and I guess to us. Yeah. Look at that. We picked right up. Continuing Edward Scissorhands coverage. It shows you the incredible masterpiece that that film is. And now we're going to, after this episode, have all the fall off. <laughs> Yeah, now 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 it's gonna be another Black Christmas episode. Oh no, I <laughs> like that one though. I like I that like one. that one. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> so today we are gonna continue with our winter horror movies. Ooh, it's very exciting. We yeah. have a uh, our lucky hat is back. Oh boy! And we're gonna we're gonna pick two today. Okay. I mean, we can kind of focus more on the two. I felt like. We didn't want to spread any movie too thin by covering too many in one episode. So we are going to pick two movies out of the hat. Sweet. Let's go. All right. What do we got here? Drum roll. We are going to see what is next. All right. I'm very excited. All right. Lay it on me. Today we are going to talk about... The 1990 masterpiece, Misery. Oh, okay. Good one. Good one. Uh, are you a fan of Misery? Yeah. I mean, I love Kathy Bates. I love, well, I feel like maybe love is a strong word for James Caan, to be fair. I know a number of his films, but I don't know his whole roster. But yes, I am a big fan of that film. I think it's a wonderful, terrifying film. Yeah, Misery came out in 1990, directed by Rob Reiner, starring Kathy Bates as Annie Wilkes, who won an award for that role, actually. A, a rarity for the horror genre. But I think people would... It, it's certainly a horror film, but I could see people almost defending the win, saying, well, it's really a thriller. I feel like thrillers get more respect, even though so many thrillers are really horror. Like, they share the same, you know... They share the same themes often, but much deserved. She's so fantastic in this film. I feel like certain movies, even though they're horror movies, will say they're thrillers because the Academy historically has not really given horror credit. Yeah, so, yeah. absolutely. Do you want to give a rundown of the film? Oh, yeah. Actually, see, there's a lot to talk about. We're not past the first name. We're already delving <laughs> down the rabbit hole. <laughs> it's a very deep movie. Okay. James Caan yeah. plays Paul Sheldon, the writer. It's, a, a, of course, a book by Stephen King, but it was the screenwriter was actually William Goldman, mm. legendary William Goldman. 
So give me your thoughts on Misery. Absolutely horrifying. Kathy Bates is so spectacularly terrifying. Her mania with how she's able to switch from so loving and tender to so enraged and violent in a split second is just incredible. And there are so many really good little details in this film that are just so fun. I love that James Caan, uh, Paul Sheldon in this, his character, always celebrates his novels being complete with one single glass of Dom Perignon, or as Kathy Bates refers to it as Dom Perignon. Uh, you know, his cigar, cigarette, just the one, and just how she takes care of him to just annihilate him and how he survives the whole entire ordeal. It's so good. It's just a really fun film. Amazingly, Kathy Bates was not the first choice for the role. She what? was actually kind of an unknown at this point. And there's a reason why they, they chose her. They, they wanted a face that people were not familiar with. But previously offered were um, Barbara Streisand, Bette Mittler, and Jessica Lange. That's so funny about Jessica Lange just because they ended up sharing American Horror Story, the witches season. They ended up both being in it together. So that's really funny. I could not see Barbara Streisand in this role. Bette Midler, I could. But Kathy Bates, amazing. Yeah, amazingly, Bette Midler turned it down to shoot a movie with Woody Allen called um, Scenes from a Mall, which is filmed in my hometown of Stanford, Connecticut. Oh, have you seen it? Um, I think I watched it like 30 years ago just to see the scenes that were filmed mm. in Stanford. But mm -hmm. I probably was too young to really understand the movie. Yeah. So I should probably watch it again. But yeah, sure. Yeah. All right, so, so you do you love this film? I absolutely love this film. This is way high in my list. I don't know where I don't have like a top 25, mm -hmm. but this is up there. I watch this movie a lot. Like, I've probably watched this movie once a year, at least since the 90s, late 90s. I know that's when I started watching it. It's a tradition. Is it a Halloween, like a spooky month, October month tradition, or just a yearly tradition? Generally, it's January, February, kind of winter season for me. Mm -hmm. Especially when there's when there's the snow on the horizon on the forecast. Oh, mm -hmm. where's misery? <laughs> Time to pop that bad boy in, put him in the fire, and... Watch some misery. Yeah. And also not a super long film. See, this is to go back to what we spoke about several weeks ago. It's so nice when a film is not standard two plus hours long. It's just so nice to be able to, from start to finish, wrap it up in about an hour and a half. You get everything with all the details needed. It's such a succinct story. Well told, well done, well acted. Yeah, it's just so good. The scenery is beautiful. You have nice winter landscapes. You know, nice quiet town. It's just kind of nice. Sometimes when you watch a movie, you can kind of imagine yourself being there. Maybe not in the room with a writer that's that's being forced upon his will. Mm -hmm. But it's just a very beautifully shot movie. So was this also filmed in New Zealand? <laughs> <laughs> this? Oh, I'm a bad host. I didn't research where this was actually filmed. Oh. But I don't know either. Oh, man. <laughs> but well, I this... have to look it up. OK, so wait. Uh, it was mostly done in Nevada and Northern California. Oh, wow. OK, I can see that. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah. But also, I think part of why they were able to get away with maybe filming there is because most of it does take place in Annie, uh, Kathy Bates's role in the house, which, by the way, looks so cozy. And I love that juxtaposition of the coziness of the home, the coziness of that vibe and the comfort level with how violent and not comfortable that environment actually is. So it's just, I, I actually really like even her clothing in it, just how plain and homely she kind of looks. I just really appreciate how this character was brought to life on screen. Did you read the book? No, I have not read the book. I have not either. We are, we're terrible today. Well, here's the thing. I am a, I read a lot. I love reading, but I'm a slow reader. Mm-hmm. And I had mentioned on a previous podcast that I didn't read a book until I was maybe a senior year in high school when I had to. It's the first time I read a book. Crazy, believe it or not, I'm not lying. And I think I just read slower. That's okay. And it takes me a long time. I've read full Stephen King's. I've read Nightmares and Dreamscapes cover to cover. It took mm-hmm. me a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, a book, when we're looking at a thousand pages, it's going to be my entire year to read a book. And if there's a movie around, I'll just kind of watch the movie. I know a lot of people find that sacrilege, but, you know. I I understand both sides. I mean, I'm an ex-English major, and I have not read a book cover to cover in a few years. So, uh, yeah. And I like reading. I do enjoy it, but I lose focus. I find as I get older, it's harder for me to maintain focus because it's harder for me to retain. So I have to keep kind of going back and like rereading. And then I just get frustrated. And I'm like, you know what? I'll just wait for the movie version to come out or I'll just read. Like I'll look for cliff notes or something, but I do like reading, but a long lengthy book like that, it's tough. That's like an investment. For instance, about a month ago, we had Armando Munoz, writer of Silent Night, Deadly Night. I ordered the book. Fantastic book, but I'm only on page 60. And that's it's been a month. And that has no knock to Armando. Sorry, Armando, Armando, but I'm a slow reader. That's also why I like comics and graphic novels, because I find I can get through them actually very quickly. And I don't lose focus, I think, in part because of the visual aspect. It keeps you a bit more engaged, especially if you're a slower reader or you have issues retaining. I just think it's it's helpful. Yeah. And it's not slow like it doesn't take me 10 minutes to read a page. Slow that I'll read three pages one day. You know what I mean? And it's this life is busy, you know? Yeah. I really try it. Like I have a plane ride coming up this week. I'll probably knock out a bunch during that, but it's hard to find the time. Yeah. So. It's dedication. So yeah. question for you. Do you know who actually turned down the role of Paul Sheldon? There's actually a huge list. We have, what would be a very interesting choice was Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. was One that was offered considering he played a struggling writer in another Stephen King adaptation, um, you know, The Shining. Mm-hmm. Uh, Warren Beatty, Robert De Niro, Michael Douglas, Richard Dreyfus, Harrison Ford, Morgan Freeman. There is a massive, massive list. Dustin Hoffman, Mel Will- Gibson. And William Hurt was offered it twice. Wow. Man, he's kicking himself twice. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder why they ended up going with James Conn. I So... I'm curious to hear your opinion on on the role that 
on him as the character. I think that he's such a strong actor. Obviously, he has a really amazing career of films. He's an established actor or, you know, posthumously, we'll say. That said, I think he's excellent in the role. But sometimes I do feel like when I watch this film, I don't know, I kind of envision not a young person, but not someone who maybe is his age. And I don't, I'm curious, like, what do you think about him in the role? I thought he was great. I This is probably the first movie I saw of him. You know, I, I saw this before Godfather. I saw this. Yeah, I think this was my introduction to him. Oh. And I, I've seen the movie so many times that I just can't imagine someone else playing it. So it's kind of hard to look back in different glasses to see, see who else would play the role better. Hmm. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, I don't know. I, I thought the chemistry was great. Some maybe theories. I know some people said that some of the actors turned it down because they didn't want to get upstaged by Annie Wilkes. But in hindsight, no one knew how amazing Kathy Bates was going to do in this role. So that's kind of, I feel like that's kind of revisionist to think that people turned it down because they didn't want to be outshined. Yeah, and also as strong as as she was, I don't think that they were on equal playing fields. Like I do think that Kathy Bates is is so supremely above the Paul Sheldon character, like Annie Wilkes, just that role. That said, I think that you did need a very strong actor to play Paul Sheldon as well. And I, I don't think that it overshadowed uh, James Caan at all. I think that he did a great job and he's also very memorable in the film as well. Yeah. Usually the villains make the movie anyways. Yeah. I mean, they're the fun ones to play. You kind of get a little bit of your rage out. Yeah. Kind of like superheroes. Usually the villains is what makes it interesting. Mm -hmm. So you know, what is it about the film that you love? I love the characters. I love the setting. I love that a lot of it is in one room. And we really get to develop the characters. So much is given to the two of them that we really see Paul learning about Annie as we do. I think Paul learns that she's a psychopath the same time that we do. Yeah. It's, and it's a journey. I find the whole movie goes on a journey. Here's a thought, actually. Was Annie ever trying to help Paul? Like, did, did you, do you think that in her mind, she was going to save Paul and then they were going to be friends or lovers? Or or was her whole intent is to keep him captive? What did you think? I think that she was, from the jump, enamored by him. Clearly, she mentions that, that she, you know, has loved him since the start of her her journey into reading his books and that scene where she has the the rainy blues she mentions that she's also actually falling in love with him i don't think her intention was ever to keep him hostage however i do think her intention was the hopes that he might also fall for her since she's also divorced and she is his biggest fan and you know there's all these amazing qualities about her that he should be so uh what's the word he should be so honored by right like it's the biggest fan she knows everything about him why wouldn't he fall in love with her respectively right so do you think her when when she read the book with all the cursing Ugh. that is that when she turned against him i know i actually think she turned against him when he, separate from the profanity that was so offensive to her, when he 
killed misery so when so based on the book that he's writing there's a character called misery which annie wilkes slash kathy bates also names her pet pig after that said so misery in the book that paul sheldon is now writing while being held captive he kills her off she dies in childbirth and she annie flips out can't handle it she is so in love with this character she can't even imagine that misery is taken from her she takes it personally and i think that's when she loses her mind i'd have to watch it again with that question because at what point was she telling paul that she spoke to the hospital because at that point she's lying to him because she kept telling oh i spoke to that agent of yours and she's going to call your daughter tell him that you're okay and the hospital says as long as there's no infection you're safe here i'd have to remember when that conversation took place because at that point she was lying to him i think that was after the first profanity i think you know what that's funny and i just rewatched the film i've seen it also a number of times but i and i just rewatched it but i can't specifically recall but it was so close it's so closely in line you know because there's not that much time that really does pass throughout this film what is it you think like maybe a matter of a couple of weeks right i think it's a few I, weeks. I think it's four weeks yeah i know the book was longer the book is supposed to be like eight months but i i believe it was only about a four week span yeah i'm glad that versus the book it was four weeks eight eight months seems too long <laughs> yeah so favorite part of the film and anything you wish they did differently in the film i'm trying to think of my favorite part I, I know what i love i did my favorite part is kathy bates i know that's an easy answer mm -hmm. but she is so freaking good in this movie of going from lovable to psychotic back to lovable in the same monologue mm -hmm. you know and so funny like she is keeping a man captive, drugging him, you know, doing other things, which we'll get to later to him. But at the same time, she won't curse. You know what I mean? Like she's so innocent, but she's like Eva at the same time. And she floats in and out of it. Oh, man, there's very few actresses that can really pull that off the, as well as she does. Th that I think is her just giving it all. She has really like left it all on the line. Like that's how I think an actor that's what they should do you want an actor who can deliver the emotions like that unhinged in all different ways and she does it in every single way every single aspect it's so perfectly executed really she just sells it so well i think my favorite monologue of her though is when she is telling why he needs to rewrite the book and she starts talking about when she used to go to the movies the serials and then someone someone gets stuck in a car and then the next week they weren't in the car and she's like, he didn't get out of the cock a duty car because I'm kind of the same way. I really hate when they changed, you know, when they changed a detail that takes you out of it. Yeah. So I kind of felt for her in that part. I'm like, yeah, that's right. You got to, you know, end it the way or start it the way the last one ended. So that was kind of fun. But she really went in and out, in and out. And then we cut back to Paul's face and he's like, what the fuck? Yeah. Really great. I think my favorite scene is when she is about to kill him by injection. And he, he is now trapped in the basement and his legs are all messed up because he had survived a car accident. That's how she found him. She was kind of stalking him. She admitted that she was following him around and he is able to, 
also like do a full 180 in a matter of like two seconds and is like, but I have to finish the book. You can't, we can't end this now because she essentially is going to do a murder suicide. She only has two bullets in her gun, one for him, one for her. And he says, but I need until, until dawn to finish my book. And she's like, okay, you're right. And I just think both of them, their acting is so solid in that like you feel for him one you're rooting for him he did such a fantastic job of persuading and convincing her but then her shift from you know i'm gonna kill you and kill myself to you're totally right i do want to know how this is gonna end i just love it it's so so good yeah this was way before it became a term was the original toxic fan culture yeah <laughs> think about it the you know he wrote his book and the fans she was so upset about it it's kind of like when star wars episode eight came out fans wanted a, a complete remake of it mm -hmm. and there's been other movies that's happened too yeah so he wrote this book and she was so upset about how it ended she was like you're gonna rewrite it again mm -hmm. but she had the advantage of having him tied to a bed so yeah she was able to get what she wanted and i love little details like you'll for those who maybe haven't seen the film although you should definitely go go watch it she ends up buying him fancy paper and this this really cool typewriter and the typewriter the only issue is that the n there's no n on it and even when they show what he's actually writing and rewriting you'll notice that every word that should have an n in it is missing just little little details that really maintain you know the full storyline i just love how nothing is missed in this film yeah and you mentioned misery the pig so paul's big complaint is that he didn't intend for misery to be his career the, the character in his his books and he feels like that's all he can do and so in a way part of him has been killed by misery so ironically annie has little misery the pig figure she has like a little metal figure mm -hmm. and he kills annie with misery the pig what was killing him oh. so it's a beautiful movie yeah and so what are your thoughts on do you want to talk about the ending sure well i guess oh. before we get to the ending ending we should talk about the hobbling scene oh okay let's do that <laughs> <laughs> wow what a visual uh. no i feel like everything in this movie it was done fairly realistically like every injury everything was Nothing was like, quote unquote, Hollywood. Yeah. So the, the scene when she realizes he's healing, she puts the, the wood between his legs and just smacks the hell out of it with, with the mallet. That was quite the visual. We all felt that. You can't watch that and not like grab your ankle. Yeah, that scene is so visceral. You really feel it. So, I, yeah, I just, it's so angry. It's so angry and there's, I mean, maybe, maybe listeners will understand, but there's definitely been moments after seeing that film that I've been like, yeah, when I hate this person that I want to do that to somebody, I definitely understand the, the vibe. However, she really does ultimately love Paul. So it's a shame that that's what she's chosen to do, but that's how enraged and insane she gets. And it just the way like how he yelps and screams also. So it seems so realistic. They just sell it so well. And one of the greatest ways to end the scene, she looks at him and says, God, I love you. Yeah. I, how uh, twisted. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good, man. Don't we all want a romance like that? <laughs> oh, yes. 
<laughs> now, in the book, she actually cuts his feet off. So, what, like, I don't want to say which do you prefer, but as far as the movie, like, what do you think? Would you have kept the feet getting cut off or would you have kept the hobbling? I love the hobbling. The yeah. hobbling seems so, like, primitive and primal, like, such such a primal way of <laughs> resolving the issue, like, such a violent way of doing it. Not that, of course, cutting off feet isn't. However... To be honest, I could see if this film was ever remade, please don't ever remake this film, but I could see if it ever was remade, they would probably cut off the feet. Yeah, I'm wondering if some of it would be, this was 1990, were there issues with worrying about the censor board? Because I don't know. There I guess isn't it was in this film. There really it, isn't. Right. See, it was an R-rated movie to begin with, so they weren't worried about you know, going from PG-13 to R, like it was already rated R. Mm-hmm. But I guess in a way, if we're going by like the story, if he had his feet cut off, you know, he'd the rest of his life either be have prosthetics or probably be in a wheelchair more likely. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Annie kind of would have won, you know, but maybe that he's just he was hobbled. So he has to walk with the cane from now on. Yeah. It's like he's still living his life, but he has the constant reminder. I know it's it's a subtle difference, but maybe that's what they were going for. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, no, I I think like I very much appreciate what they did in the film compared to how they did it in the book. I I think it makes him a little bit more triumphant. It's a little bit feels less permanent. Like there's still going right. to be hope for him to be able to walk or or figure out how to do it. You know, whereas in the book that is permanent. Even though he can get prosthetics, it's it's the end of those feet, those toesies. <laughs> yeah. What a movie, I tell you. So, so good. I don't think it's streaming for free anywhere. So I think you might have to spend some money for Amazon for those who want to watch it. But it's worth it. Experience. I bought the DVD, which was the very much cheapest option versus where you can access it now. But it is available for purchase on streaming, um, but it's not as of today, it's not free streaming anywhere. Yeah, it's definitely worth the money. And then next winter, we could have a watch along. I'll be watching it. Yeah. <laughs> Every oh, year yeah. you could join me. We can watch it together. So good. I uh, can't wait for next year. You got to let me know when you do it. Actually, one more note before we move on to our next movie. And I, I, I didn't hear about this. And I'm really disappointed in myself. But there was a Broadway play starring Bruce Willis and Laurie Metcalf. Mm-hmm. Man, Lori Metcalf, I'm sure she she probably smashed that role. Absolutely. That was also not even that long ago, I think. 2015? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so right before he got really sick. and But Lori Metcalf is such an animal in all of her roles, good and bad. Just she probably, to your point, I agree, definitely probably killed that role. I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Any last words or should we move on to the next movie in our... Go watch it. Seriously, if you guys have not watched Misery and you are listening to this podcast, spoilers or not, it is a film. It's it's an iconic film. Thriller and horror. Do yourselves a favor. Watch it. And acting students, too. Study these performances, especially of Annie Wilkes. Mm -hmm. Oh, amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Number two. 
the second movie and our last movie of the day. Wow. This is quite the double feature. And I swear I didn't set this up. Now I'm worried. (laughs) (laughs) The second movie of the day is The Shining. Oh, Lord. Wow. Talk about movies that have a lot of similarities. How much time do we have to talk about this film? Because there's so much to discuss. Goodness. So, of course, just to be clear, we're talking about the 1980 version, not the 1997 Mick Garris miniseries. So we're going to stick to the, the 1980s Stanley Kubrick film. Thank God. I don't have it in me to talk about the Mick Garris one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, I know that that is, more, is more aligned with the book that said, I just, oof, I don't have it in me. That one's like a whole pro. Uh, really. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. We'll go, I'm going to get back to your note, but before we get there, let me just mention, for those that don't know, starring Jack Nicholson as Jack, Shelley Duvall as Wendy, and Danny Lloyd as Danny. So, interesting enough, we'll just get it out of the way. Um, I, yeah, I know the, the biggest criticism, like you said, is that it strayed from the book. You know, Stephen King wasn't happy with it. But what, what are your thoughts on that as far as a movie straying too far from a book? I... I mean, okay, I'll preface it by saying I love this film so, so, so much. I hate some of the aspects as to how things were filmed. Like I think about how Shelley Duvall, this changed her entire life and frankly, the trajectory in her career. That said, I love this film and I'm so glad it did not follow the book. Uh, the, The real ending of the film which I've seen again. I do want to say terrible horror fan. I have not read the book. I own it. It's on my list of, to read, but I have not read it. Um, but I do know the the real aspects of it, which is in Mick Garris's version. I I'm so glad that Stanley Kubrick did not follow Stephen King's writing because wow, it, this is so much better. <laughs> you, yeah. what do you think? Yeah, again, I didn't read the book, of course. But I do know the differences of it. And I know like some of the aspects that they left out from what I hear is like the slow, the slow dissension into insanity. Mm-hmm. And like I don't know, alcohol was his alcoholism was referenced more in the book. Yeah. But when it comes to the movie, we found out that he was insane the whole time. You know, from the minute he started writing his book, he was pretty much insane. As we, we yeah. find out towards the end of the movie. Yeah, and so let's just do a quick synopsis of the the film, which is um, Jack Torrance, who is played by Jack Nicholson. He is looking for a new job, and he goes to a hotel, which is the Overlook Hotel, and in real life is the Stanley Hotel in Colorado, um, for those who love spooky excursions. So he goes there, and he gets an off-season role as the hotel caretaker. And with that, he can bring his family, Shelley Duvall and and Danny Lloyd, uh, the wife and son. But the family expense is it's just going to be them. So he gets the job and they go there. It's like a five-month stint and it's a slow descent into madness where ultimately Jack Nicholson's character tries to kill 
the family. The hotel is possessed and the spirits are essentially talking to Jack Nicholson or Jack Torrance in this in this film. Um, sorry, I, I feel like it's jarring. I keep referring to the actor and then the character, but that's how my brain works. So anyway, it's a really solid character study of madness. Yeah, you're right. Jack is played by Jack and Danny's played by Danny. It's kind of like mm -hmm. the Blair Witch. They right. name the characters yeah. after their real life names. <laughs> right. But Shelly is Wendy. Uh, really Winifred. Ah, nice. Yeah, there, there's so much to delve into this movie. There was um, a whole documentary. I don't know if you saw Room 237. Yes. And unfortunately, there's a lot of theories, a lot of these things that are kind of stated as fact that are not true. Mm -hmm. Like the Apollo moon landing. Some, there's a theory that Stanley Kubrick was trying to admit and apologize for filming the Apollo moon landing, which he debunked that. Um, there's a couple other theories out there that he said that there was no intention, but there's full theories that kind of become truth. You know, mm -hmm. if it's said enough, people just assume it's true. Yeah. But there, there, there's a lot of symbolism that I'm, I'm pretty sure was left in there on purpose. Like, there was the whole aspect that the place was built on a Native American burial ground. Yep. You know, because that was referenced in the beginning when he's giving Jack and Wendy a tour of the hotel. He's like, oh, yeah, this was built on Native American burial ground. We had to fight a couple of them off when we were building it. And then on the inside, you have like paintings of Native Americans. And then there's this one jar, like Camelot, which is like a, there's, a, there's a Native American on the can that's oh, that's yeah. featured a lot in the background, a lot of these shots. So, you know, does it have to do with the Native American losing their land? Is that some of the inside meaning behind it or is, or is it coincidence? I don't know. Yeah. I, I love the symbolism in this film. I mean, the, the film is so textured with colors. I love the cinematography of it. So the hotel has this entire labyrinth outside that you can walk along. And because they're in, when you first see it, uh, this, it's not a corn maze, but it's like a grass maze, if you will. And when you first see it and it's warm, so it's beautiful, green, lush, etc. And then by the time they get there, it's covered in snow and it's really hard to navigate. And even the owner, when he's showing Jack Torrance around, he's like, if you have all night to, to go through it, you know, then you can get through it. So it's very foreboding. And even when the film initially starts, the music is so ominous. You just know it's going to be this slow descent. It's winding and it's visuals. And even I know that Stanley Kubrick used, uh, I think this was one of the first films that used like the Steadicam meth method. So these were like long shots that were also combined. Very visually dense and appealing and just, oh, I love it so much. I just love the the use of colors and the use of blood in this film and the close-ups. The thing that's important to note about this film and why in later years it, it has developed a more difficult reputation is Stanley Kubrick's filming. So certain scenes, there's a famous scene where Jack Torrance is like berating Wendy and she's you know, swatting a bat at him. And that was filmed over a hundred times. Uh, there's a scene with Scatman Crothers who plays the official head chef of the hotel. And he is the one who figures out that Danny, their son has what's called the shining. So he's essentially a little bit gifted, like with psychic abilities and whatnot, they can communicate telepathically. And um, there's a scene where it, 
closes in on him as he realizes telepathically that something terrible is happening at the hotel. That was shot like 60 times. Supposedly he cried after filming it as well. He couldn't handle Stanley Kubrick. Um, so very tough filming conditions from the director. Yeah, no, I, I feel really bad when you hear the stories of um, Shelley Duvall. It's funny. She shot this movie came out the same year as Popeye, and I'm sure she'd rather be in Sweet Haven than back oh. in the Stanley Hotel or the Overlook Hotel. <laughs> I'd love to actually hear from you as a director and filmmaker. What do you think about that type of technique? Oh, God, I'm not a fan. I don't know. I have a, a different outlook on it. I want people to enjoy doing what they love to do. Mm -hmm. I feel really bad if somebody cried for the <laughs> way I treated them and needed therapy after the way I treated them. Yeah. You know, again, you know, I'm no... Um, I'm no Stanley Kubrick, but who am I to judge? But for me personally, I could not treat someone that way. Is there a certain amount of takes that you max out? Like if you haven't gotten it by so-and-so take, you're, you just move on? You just work with what you have? Well, if timing wasn't an instance, like if, you know, if we had all day to get a specific shot, I guess it depends what it is. Like how important is it? You know, how specific does it need to be? But yeah. after a while, if you start seeing diminishing returns, you know, okay, maybe we, we move on and mm. shoot something else. Like, I, I couldn't imagine. I, I've heard numbers of like 140 takes during this movie for certain scenes. I know the scene when she was in the bathroom, wasn't that like a, that was over 40 takes of her crying in the bathroom? That was also a lot of takes too. Or yeah. was it was when she was swinging the, the, the axe. Yeah, that's what I, that's like the bat that that was over a hundred on the stairs. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, I would also, you know, when you're directing a movie too, you're also kind of the um, managing the set as well. So also, I wouldn't want to lose the crew mm -hmm. and lose everyone else involved, like because that might negatively affect something down the line. If your audio guy can't even hold the boom pole anymore because he's been holding it up, walking up stairs for you know, a hundred takes. So I would start thinking of that kind of stuff. Again, I'm not Stanley Kubrick. So, you know, yeah. there's a reason that he's a legendary director, but that's not my personal style. Although I think some of the tactics, tactics he used to get these shots, while I think he was always a bit of a difficult director, I think this was the most notorious of all of them. I think this was the roughest that he ever treated staff and, and the actors. So just fascinating. But really, I mean, it's also such a such a cool film. And I know that this, this film is a bit polarizing. Like some people really, separate from the book, just do not like this film at all. They feel like it's very slow. They don't really get it. And I don't know. I kind of feel like it's a film you either do get it or you don't. It's, I don't know, thoughts on that? I think a lot of Stanley Kubrick's work is like that. You know, mm. like either you love it or you you hate it. Maybe not hate it, but like, what was it, 2001? I yes, want to say it, mm. was a, it was a solid 30 minutes before there was any dialogue. And yeah. so I know for, you know, for a film lover, would, would love the composition, love the shots that give it patience. But I know... A lot of people would be like, I can't watch this. And yeah. I've known people that have turned it off before any dialogue was spoken. And this is a long film, too. So if you 
I would like to believe that most listeners will have seen this film. However, if you haven't, this is a film that you will want time to really sit with because this is, I think, it's over two hours, right? I think so. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. like two hours, five minutes. Yeah, so it's just over. But it was a really long film for that time as well. Yeah. I actually loved the opening credits, by the way. Oh, yeah. So beautiful. And the, the theme song... What was it called? Dias Arai. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right. Uh huh. What a perfect song. Haunting. Have you seen? I'm sure you've seen the uh, the revamps of it where they maintain the visuals, but then they give it like a real perky '80s sitcom type of music, and it's really hilarious. I haven't, but I will as soon as we finish recording. That sounds right. great. I have to send those to you. Yeah, it's, they're awesome. They're really well done. But th there's some theories to this that uh, this shows you the passion. There's some theories about this movie that for someone to come up with these theories must have watched this movie a lot. Like there's this guy on that documentary that he watched the movie side by side, but watched one of them in reverse. Yeah. And he he <laughs> he claims that like certain things line up at the exact moment on purpose. If that's the case. Wow, that puts Stanley Kubrick on a whole nother level. That would take <laughs> take quite the quite the time to get these things to line up perfectly. Yeah, the only thing I know in terms of lining up is like I mentioned earlier, the way that he filmed it was very intentional. Like he wanted, but I don't know the terminology for it, but he wanted like let's say someone's arm was in view, he wanted the extension of the arm to be somewhat seamless with a certain object in the next frame or something like that. So a lot of things were intentional. Truthfully, I mean, I'm not a filmmaker by any means, so I could, I'm speaking out of term that said, I would find it hard to believe that a film of this length and complexity, he would try to have things in reverse matching what is not in reverse. That's so extra, you know? Yeah. And then there's also a story that um, Tom Cruise tells on the set of Eyes Wide Shut that Stanley Kubrick was still editing The Shining. So a lot of these theories that he, in his mind, the movie wasn't done. So maybe a lot of these little things he put in there, like there was the Holocaust reference. People say that it's, uh, it's uh, things are referencing the Holocaust. And then there's mm -hmm. the, whole, the Native American references mm -hmm. that maybe some of them weren't fully fleshed out the way he wanted to. So he was still yeah. editing it as far as 1999, which is, pretty insane yeah so okay what are your do you like this film do you love the film i want to say it's a high like i don't want to say i love it you know it's a good movie mm -hmm. um i enjoy it but it's not one that i watch all the time like i probably versus misery that i watch every year the shining is maybe every five or six years all right so favorite scene Favorite scene. It's funny. Let's see. I, I love the scene when he gets the tour of the place. I feel like we're getting a tour of the place. I always kind of find that stuff kind of fun was what we're exploring this place as they are. Mm -hmm. That was kind of cool. Uh, I guess, you know, it, I know it's cliche, but my favorite scene is probably him breaking in with the X because the whole thing builds to that moment. Like mm -hmm. The whole movie is building to the crescendo of him finally snapping and attacking his family. 
I think my favorite scene is actually the scene at the bar. So what's important to note is that Jack Torrance is a recovering alcoholic and the bar in their off season, they remove all of the booze because of insurance reasons. They actually then pay less on insurance. And there's a scene where he is starting to kind of lose his mind. He's having terrible, violent nightmares about already killing his family, but he hasn't done anything yet. And he goes to the bar and he's talking to himself in the mirror. And all of a sudden, uh, a bartender Lloyd pops up and pours him a glass of bourbon and you don't really know if it's really happening or if it's in his imagination. But what I noticed when I was rewatching this is there's a particular face that Jack Nicholson makes right before you see Lloyd, the bartender. And it is the same exact face that he has when you find him dead at the end of the film. And so I feel like this is the official start of his descent into madness. And also just in terms of like color theory and symbolism in the film, Jack is often wearing like this maroon red type of jacket. Lloyd is wearing this brighter red jacket. So when you see him, it's almost like he's having a conversation with the devil. And I feel, and Jack mentions, I would sell my soul for a glass of, of booze right now. And he's given this glass. And as soon as he drinks it, everything changes. And then Wendy comes in and you you see that he's not actually drinking anything at all. So you still don't know, did anything really happen? Or is it all in his imagination? And I just, that scene gets me every single time. I just love it so deeply. It's so well done, so well acted. The way that Jack Nicholson is able to move his face to emote is so powerful. And, you know, I think that's why, obviously, he's a very beloved actor in all the films that he does. So I just love that. See, that's my favorite scene. But when he enters the room and he sees the bartender, right, mm -hmm. he's not like, what the hell is he doing here? It's just him. It's business as usual. I want my drink. Yeah. There's my bartender. So it kind of shows where his mental state is at that point. Yeah. It's kind of fun. So good. And there's a good line. There's actually... It sounds like a mistake, but I think it's purposeful because he says he hasn't had a drink of alcohol since he broke Danny's arm, mm -hmm. and which was three years earlier. Mm -hmm. But then he also said it's been six months since they had a drink. That kind of shows that he's he says he quit, but he's been sneaking drinks for the last three years. Yeah. There's a fun little line in there that doesn't stand out, but that says a lot about his character. It's always fascinating to me watching this film because I don't know if you felt the same I just feel like the family unit in this film is really fascinating. At times it feels like there's very much a deep love. And then at times they feel so distant, but it, it, I feel like that from the start, they never seem totally connected. They never seem entirely disconnected and they all at times feel like outliers. Like they shouldn't even be in this family. I don't know. It's just, this is, I think that's why I really love this film. And I think that's why a lot of people love it. There's so much in it to dissect and like investigate. And when you watch it and rewatch it, you always noticed like, you know, I noticed that face today. I noticed other things today that, that I haven't seen before or noticed before. It's just such a cool appealing, like there's something about it that you also feel cold when you're watching it. Like I always feel, even if I watch it in the summer, I also feel like, oh, it's winter right now. For the next two hours, I'm in a winter setting, you know? Right. Now, do you think The Shining, or The Shining, as The Simpson calls it, do you think The Shining is repressed by his alcohol? So when he gets off the alcohol, 
the actual shining is now starting to become prevalent for Jack? No, I don't think Jack has the shining at all. Only Danny does. Danny and um, Halloran, who's played by Scatman Crothers. I don't think Jack has any. He is essentially, I think, being possessed by the spirits that because the other story is there was the old caretaker a decade before Grady who kind of went through the same thing. He was watching the hotel and he ended up killing his family. And I think that's, you're supposed to think that Lloyd must be some sort of a buffer an intermediary player confirming that he can in fact take the soul, which is then like being given to Grady because then he meets Grady later on in the bathroom. And so I think the only one that has the shining really is Danny and Halloran who's trying to protect him. Like, Danny, you know, is trying to also figure out how to navigate this possessed space. Yeah, Halloran was a very important character. You know, mm-hmm. without him, we would have no idea what's happening. He kind of explains what The Shining is. Mm-hmm. And then I know when he finally makes it back to the house at the end of the movie to try to save the family, it makes a very awesome. important. Yeah, I know he gets he gets the axe and then he's taken out quite easily. But also shows that the only person that knew what was happening in that house is dead. And now they're truly alone. And there's no one to save Danny or Wendy. Yeah, because Jack has also taken apart the radio, any type of communication that's that's done. Um, and what a scene. I love how this scene is filmed. There, you know, that the visuals of seeing Halloran being you know, hit with the axe and the flash, the flashing of Danny's face yelling while not hearing a scream. It's just so like you hear it in the background somewhat, but the, the sound that's also used in this scene is overpowering. It's just so, oh, it's so good. (laughs) Another cool thing of the movie was the sounds other than the classical song at the beginning. Mm -hmm. A lot of the soundtrack in this is just sounds like clanking and banging. It just helps add to the unsettling feeling of the movie. I love when films actually, as much as I love soundtracks and music that's that's utilized in film, it clearly you know adds so much to a film. It can also really deter a, a viewer. That said, I love that there isn't much in this film. There isn't much music. It makes it so much more unnerving and uncomfortable just to have the reality of the actual sounds going on and to hear the silence again there's that aspect of of being alone you know then that last shot of the film when um jack is in the the night early 1900s at the party mm-hmm. it really adds a question what did we just watch yeah you know it really like they they don't give you all the answers they give you little clues and i think that's a a, a technique that Kubrick uses. He makes you think after the movie, like, did this really happen? Was it in Jack's head? Was he seeing ghosts or was it, did he just go mad? You know, and then seeing him in the early 1900s at the July 4th party, mm-hmm. you just kind of scratch your head and you're like, what just happened? Yeah. Or is this another life that he lived? Was he, you know, even though we saw Grady, did we really see Grady? Was maybe Jack, did it, was Grady actually Jack, you know, in 1921 during that time? So I, I love that little bonus at the very end of the film. You know, it's so, I really, really like that. Yeah. 
also it's very well done. I mean, I don't know as again, like, I don't know the techniques used. So maybe for you as someone who really works on films, you might think that was poorly done. But as a viewer, I always think, wow, like, especially when the film came out, the image and how they imposed or rather like put in Jack Nicholson into this, this photo, which I do think that was probably like some sort of a real old photo and they just slapped him in there somehow. I just think it looks so organic and well done. I'm guessing that they probably got a bunch of people in period clothing. I don't yeah. know. Maybe. Don't but the reason why I think not is because in that photo, they have someone behind Jack intentionally grabbing his arm. But as they actually pan in the actual close-up of his face, you can kind of see very granularly it doesn't quite look like his background. Now, I don't I don't know, maybe. You you might be right. I could be wrong. I would have to take a closer look. You know, it's interesting thing to ponder. I'd have to I'd have to take another look at it, try to really break it down. Yeah. I just I just found that back in the day some of the um superimposing wasn't as believable as it is now. But you could be right. I'll have to take a look see again. Yeah. We'll touch base on that when we do our Shining versus Shining episode. I know. I'm actually really excited for that episode. Um, and so I have one last question for you, which is separate from what's true to the book, what do you think about this ending? The fact that like how he how he freezes and Yeah, how he changes him and yep, it doesn't get out. Yeah, I think that's fine. That works for me. Yeah. All right. I had no issue with it, you. <laughs> No, I meant more so like, do you like that ending or would you have rather it had been something else? Like, I really like the, the fact that it's taken outside in the cold where it is actually lonely. Like, they're really alone. No one can hear you even if they're nearby. And how Danny really backtracks using his own footsteps and he trips up Jack, you know, like confuses him. I just think it's so smart. Yeah. Yeah. Like they were trapped in this house and they escaped and that's how they survived. Mm -hmm. So it kinda, it worked for me. Yeah. Now the interesting, why I thought it was so interesting that these two movies popped up is they're both written by Stephen King mm -hmm. and they're both about struggling writers who yeah. are stuck indoors because of a blizzard. And all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Yeah. Who would you rather be stuck in the house with Jack or Annie Wilkes? Jack. <laughs> now, wouldn't it have been, <laughs> wouldn't like have been interesting if Jack Nicholson had chosen to play that role of Paul Sheldon? I'm so glad. I don't think as, as much as I love Jack Nicholson and I'm sure he would have done a great job. I think he's actually too dynamic for that role. He emotes, too much and i love him in his serious and even like sad you know romantic roles as well but i just think he is overpowering for kathy bates and i think that james Conn was able to balance her and let her shine where that character needed to really shine and i don't know that jack nicholson would have been able to do the same because he's just so you know loud in his own way in every single role right Talk about great bookends, though. He started the 80s with The Shining. He ended it with Batman. Yeah. What a decade. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. 
Stephen Stephen King? Nicholson. Oh, I'm sorry. I was like, he didn't write Batman. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. And how good is he as, in, as the Joker? Too? Oh, so good. Oh. Interesting, Nicholson. Now we're we're getting down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Do you like him better as Joker or as Jack Torrance? Jack Torrance. Okay. And I'll I'll just say the reason why is Jack Torrance. I find him so believable, and in Batman. He as as jokey as the Joker is, I think that his version is very silly. I love it, and I think that film is awesome, but it is so silly, and I think I like my Joker a little bit more sinister. Gotcha. I just ask you that because you're a comic book fan. I don't mean to go too far down the rabbit hole. No, but what do you prefer? I'm curious now too. If I if between those two roles, I think he was better as Jack Torrance. But I love them as the Joker. And so final question. Yeah. Who do you think you could outrun or survive? Jack Nicholson's Joker or Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance? I probably could outrun Jack Torrance fairly well. I'm a I'm an athletic guy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, oh Joker doesn't really run after you though. He has like little toys and stuff, but he doesn't really battle as as well hand you know like hand to hand in that movie he's got like his little biting thing that comes out of his jacket well yeah but he has his henchmen yeah i guess bob would be your your biggest challenge yeah i think i could take both of them all right we'll see okay better question who would win in a fight the joker or jack torrance oh joker (laughs) yeah i think I think the, I think maybe, I think maybe Joker. Uh, you think Jack Torrance? Oh, it'd be, it'd be, well, I guess we've seen very little. We we have a small sampling to go by. You know, Jack has the axe, the Joker. I think Jack takes him actually. Yeah. The Joker, mm-hmm. he didn't really fight well in those movies. Well, in, in the 1989 Batman, he got a couple punches in, but he seemed to hurt his hand more than he hurt. Batman. True. Yeah, I don't know. That's uh yeah. I have to pun- I really have to I have to think about it, but above all, I think Annie Wilkes would take both of them. Oh my god, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that that's a, a a beautiful couple there. Annie Wilkes yeah. and, and Jack Torrance. Yeah. That's yeah. Match made in hell. Give me a comic <laughs> for that. I would love to read that comic. Absolutely. All right. I mean, we get, these two movies, we could have gone on forever. And they deservedly need more conversation. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Aye, aye, aye. Bummer. Yeah. That's it. Well, join us again next week, my friends, for another episode of the Scared of Horror podcast. Remind everyone, Dalen, where can we find you on the socials? You can find me at ghoul underscore whip, also known as ghoul whip, on Instagram. And you can find us at scared underscore stiff underscore films. Thanks again, everyone. We will see you next week. Better come back. Better. Better. <laughs>